He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. Tell me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton with you all now. Thank you so much for joining. Great to have you here in the Freedom Hut. Oh, man, we've got a lot to discuss today. Lots going on in the world. Lots going on right here at home. Let me just give you a quick rundown of guests, and that'll also give you a sense of topics we're going to be hitting throughout the show. We've got the one and only Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal joining us later with news of the day, including the deportation orders and detention rules that the administration released uh, today as part of the crackdown on illegal immigration that is just beginning. We'll talk to Kim about that and some other issues. We've got Matt Schlapp, chairman of the American Conservative Union and CPAC, He's going to talk to us about CPAC, and also, of course, I'm sure we'll get into a bit of the Milo Yiannopoulos controversy. Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, going to talk to us a bit about what's true on all this immigration stuff and what's not. He's got some new analysis for us on what the cost cost of the border wall would be and how it could be paid for. It has nothing to do with Mexico paying for it in this case. And then also Ami Horowitz, who's the filmmaker who made a documentary about Sweden and the problems it's having with refugee crime and immigrant crime. And Donald Trump saw his video and mentioned it, and it became a thing in the news cycle. There's also a lot going on in Sweden. So we have an absolutely jam-packed show today, and I'm very pleased, very uh, thankful to have you all here with me as we get into it. So the guidance documents came out today. Now, the guidance documents have some specificity when it comes to immigration. This is the Department of Homeland Security, where you've got General Kelly alongside now. He's at DHS, the head of DHS, General McMaster, who is now the National Security Advisor, General Mattis, who is the Defense Secretary. You've got three esteemed and brilliant military minds in three of the most critical posts in the United States government. But Kelly's one of them. He's DHS secretary. And his agency released today these guidance, docu- guidance documents. And what's what's amazing, and you have to start with this right away. Forget about everything else the media is saying about it because you're going to see lots of stories about immigrants in the shadows. And notice they'll say immigrants. They won't specify illegal immigrants. No legal immigrant has any reason to be concerned about anything that Trump has put out today, and I don't believe we'll have any reason to be concerned about anything he's doing in the future. We like green card holders. We like people who want to become U.S. citizens. We like people who go through the legal process. That's why we have the process, right? This is, if you were running a university and you have people that are applying to your university, you're happy that people are applying. You want them to come to university. That's why you set up that process. You wouldn't be happy if people were sneaking into the admissions office and jumping ahead of the line and making sure that they gained admission without going through that competitive process. And yes, in fact, our immigration system is supposed to be a competitive process. We've often lost sight of that recently because the way that the media talks about this, they say that it's not really important because we're a nation of immigrants, you see, and immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do 
And if you don't accept that rhetoric, if you don't accept those storylines, you're pushing immigrants into the shadows and you are heartless and you're breaking up families. I often find it uh, very interesting when you hear these different groups talking about illegal immigrants. They don't seem quite as upset about all the other federal laws that are out there that are exercised, that are implemented. People are prosecuted under those statutes. Those all break up families, too. Um, people go to prison. People lose their houses. People lose their life savings. In, many, in some cases, because of federal laws that I don't even think should exist, but the laws are there. And what this Trump guidance, and that's a good transition point, because what this Trump guidance, uh, these Trump guidance documents accomplish is mostly just a reset on the way that the government is going to approach immigration. And here's the here's the magic sauce. Here's the special trick. Here's the uh, way that they are going to bring about a dramatic change in attitudes about immigration and how our immigration policy works, assuming this all goes through. And I know there are going to be court battles. The various sanctuary cities across the country will fight this. This is not going to be easy or simple in any way. This is going to be a knockdown, drag out fight with much of the left because it's not just ideological. Their power is at stake here. When you're talking about the mayor or even the statewide elected uh, office holders, whether congressmen or senators in places like California, New York, there are so many illegal immigrants who, of course, have ties many times into the legal immigrant community. If they have children here, they have birthright citizenship and if they have family members here, then they might have access to benefits in the household. And who knows, by the way, I actually worked in law enforcement for a short while and spent some time with many career law enforcement officers. And we would they would speak openly about how benefits fraud, unless it was really egregious. And this is even apart from the illegal immigration issue. But, of course, illegal immigration plays into this because uh, the undocumented or illegal aliens, as they are known in law, are more likely because to violate benefits laws because they're not allowed to get any benefits, or at least they're not supposed to at the federal level, but they do. And unless there's an egregious case of somebody who is claiming 15 dependents, and there have been these cases in the past, they'll prosecute that. You know, if you look like you're, you're, you're living a bit large, if you look like you're just getting a little too much in the way of benefits from the state, they'll crack down on you. But Generally speaking, benefits fraud is not prosecuted because the defendants are sympathetic and it's not considered a worthwhile expenditure of law enforcement resources. Tell that, of course, to the IRS when they send you a bill in the mail for $7 or $7,000 or $70,000, whatever the case may be. They'll track you down. They'll turn The IRS will turn you as a U.S. citizen upside down and shake out your pockets and take whatever money they think you owe them. But... When it comes to benefits fraud, for example, with the illegal immigrant community, they don't look into this because they don't want to. And because the different legal authorities that are in place in sanctuary cities, and there's the there's the main sanctuary cities, and then there's the secondary uh, and tertiary sanctuary cities. There are places where this is a matter of absolute uh, political Sanctity. I mean, they just will not budge on this. L.A., New York, other major metropolitan areas, and other places that are afraid of getting sued by the ACLU. But here's and so they have these policies in place for self-preservation. And, and I feel bad for these localities, these cities, the mayors and law enforcement officers who are left to deal with 
Oh, illegal immigrant crime. We're, we're told that's not a problem. Oh, isn't that fascinating? Isn't it amazing to see the media make generalizations about Americans? They'll say, for example, well, Americans commit more crimes uh, than illegal immigrants do. Oh, I'd like to see the numbers on that. I'd like an explanation of that. But aren't they really just saying then that illegal immigrants are better than Americans? This is our own government telling us this. You know, They'll say that and they have no problem saying it because it fits the political narrative of the moment. But here's the radical departure from the immigration norm of recent decades. Of course, spurred on by the Democratic Party's insatiable need for power, for votes, for those who are more likely to be dependent on the state and its largesse, which keep in mind is always largesse that is taken from you by force. The state has no money of its own to give. It takes money from you, it takes resources from you, and time, which is really the same thing, and gives it to others. And it does so under the banner of uh, what is righteous, uh, what is humanitarian, what is fair, to borrow an Obama moment there. It was about fairness, you will recall. But so the revolutionary approach that the Trump White House is going to have on immigration, and we're just seeing... Bits and pieces of it rolled out today. This revolution in law enforcement application is going to involve the following. Enforce the laws as they are written. (gasps) Oh my gosh, how could you? You see, if the laws themselves are xenophobic and racist and wrong, well then members of Congress should stand up and say they want to get rid of these laws. The Democrats won't do that. They prefer to have it both ways. They prefer to have their cake and eat it, too. Sure, keep laws in place so they can pretend that they want secure borders and immigration enforcement, but then do everything in your power as a Democrat who wants to have the votes of illegal and just in general immigrant communities, do everything in your power to get them to vote for you. And that means, of course promoting this idea that law enforcement should not enforce the laws when it comes to immigration. So the guidance documents out today, I'll have to give you the specifics of them on the other side of this break, but they're gearing up for a real political fight in D.C. right now on both sides because this goes to the heart. This is kind of like going after the teachers' unions, only it brings in even more. Now you're going after the power base, the Democratic Party. You're going after after the notion that there should be immigrant communities that vote entirely Democrat because the Democrat Party is de facto open borders, or at least wishes it could get away with being so. All right, I've got so much show. I'm running short on time here. 844-900-2825. What do you think about these immigration guidance documents from today? What do you think is coming out this week? Buck Sexton with America Now continues right after the break. So the guidance documents from the Department of Homeland Security. Let's talk about these for a minute here. Uh, They establish some new approaches to immigration under this administration, approaches that are well within existing law. Isn't this amazing? Isn't it quite a wake-up call, I think, for many of us that you can have what is considered a draconian, a, uh, a hardline immigration policy by looking at what current immigration law says and turning around and saying, let's do that stuff. Let's let's do what the immigration laws say instead of just 
as a matter of policy from the top down, as we saw during the Obama years in the White House, ignoring these laws to the greatest extent possible. Now, of course, Democrats are going to have to agree publicly, at least, with sending uh, gang uh, gang offenders, you know, murderers, rapists, cartel hitmen who are not U.S. citizens back to where they came from. Right. That that would seem like a pretty straightforward political issue for both sides. You, you can't allow people who are a danger to U.S. citizens to continue to stay here beyond uh, when they serve their term, assuming they are serving a term. But be, but after that, it gets very tough on the Democrats. Side. They don't really want to send anybody home, it seems, because it's easier to be virtuous when you have no risk yourself. You know, you're, you're risking other people. That's always the Democrat mindset with this. You know, it's not the journalists who write for the favored newspapers in New York and D.C. You know, they're not going to deal with illegal immigrants uh overflow into schools, into classrooms that are already overburdened. They're not certainly going to, generally speaking, be competing with illegal immigrants for jobs. They feel like it doesn't affect them. And so it's almost like getting to be charitable and you're writing checks out of somebody else's bank account. Well, who wouldn't want to sign on for that? The more the merrier. Bring everyone in. They'll vote for the same people I vote for as a Democrat. And we can feed them and clothe them and take care of them. And someone else is going to be picking up the bill. Isn't that great? It is virtue signaling with no cost to the individuals who are doing that signaling. Of course, no surprise. So the guidance documents from DHS establish the following. This is in, con- this is in contravention. This is a departure from what had been the case. And I'm going to tell you these things, and I hope I, I, don't, I don't have to give you a, a, a trigger warning here that you have to cover your ears. Oh, my gosh, good heavens, how will we ever... How will we ever live with ourselves if we do things like, for example, increase the population of illegal aliens um, to on to the deport uh, deportation side of the ledger, where you have fraud before a government agency is now a deportable offense. Keep in mind, under law, anyone who is here illegally can be deported. That is the law currently, but there expanding the enforcement priorities so that somebody who goes before a government agency, i.e. somebody who presents fake documents, remember, they're not undocumented, they've got documents usually of some kind, fake documents before a government agency, then they could be deported. Now, if you went before a government agency and showed fake documents, you'd have a criminal record. This would be a big problem for you. But if an illegal alien goes before a government agency, we're supposed to think, well, they have no choice, so they have to do this. Well, they had the choice to not be in the country illegally in the first place. That's the first step in the in the choice decision tree. Okay. Uh, the abuse of government benefits. As I mentioned to you, we have very, our numbers on this are not good. I know about this from the local law enforcement level, talking to old NYPD guys who have been on the job for 20, 25 years. And they would tell me, look, uh, there's all kinds of welfare fraud that goes on, including for illegal immigrants, but it's just not... What prosecute, prosecutors got to spend their time dealing with assaults and burglaries and drug dealers. They're not going to be going after people who are getting food stamps illegally. But at the macro level, how many people are getting government benefits that aren't supposed to? And what does that mean? Why should we continue to be paying for this? As I say to all of you, you know, at the, at the, if you want to take it to that place 
where, oh, well, what's the big deal if somebody's getting benefits they're not supposed to? What's the big deal? If I don't pay my taxes, if you don't pay your taxes, it has, from a from a monetary perspective, for the United States Treasury, zero, absolutely zero impact. You could go your whole life not pay a cent in taxes, and no sane human being could say to you that the country is going to be worse off because of it. Of course, the argument quickly turns into, the debate would turn to, well, if everybody did that, oh, that's right. So if everybody does it, it's a problem. That's why we have laws, and that's why, and that's why we have enforcement of those laws. Well, if that applies to taxes, shouldn't it also apply to immigration? Look at that. We've constructed an argument pretty quickly for why benefits fraud is also a problem. You have expedited removals. It used to be the case under the Obama administration that you had a window of time during which if you were here, you were able to be deported back quickly. I believe it was less than 12 months. Now it's two years. So if you've been in the country illegally for two years or less, you can just be in an expedited removal process. So that means also anyone who's come recently thinking, well, I'm going to get the benefit of amnesty because they thought amnesty was coming. Uh, they thought maybe that Obama would pass some executive order that would give them status. Whatever the case may be, they can be sent back quickly. You have 10,000 immigration and customs agents that are going to be hired and added to the existing existing uh, roles, which means there'll be more individuals out there to enforce these laws. That's rather straightforward. No need to explain that. It just means there'll be more law enforcement officers to handle uh, these expanded caseloads that will happen as you expand the pool of the deportable, you will need more law enforcement resources to manage that. Also, according to the New York Times here, which, of course, go back and, as I've said, you read some of the editorials from the Times in the 90s about illegal immigration, all all about how it, it hurts work, it hurts workers' wages and it puts uh, negative uh, negative pressure on school systems and on the local economy in many ways. There's all kinds of problems, never mind the crime issue, which we'll, visit, we'll revisit that later on in the show tonight. Um, but you have uh, Central American parents have in recent years been bringing their children, their unaccompanied children across the border to meet them here in this country. Under the, based on what the New York Times is saying, those people may be charged with human trafficking if they continue to do that. And Look, they're they're taking they're risking the lives of their children by doing this. And they're all so it's it's a decision that should not be supported because the life of the child is the most important thing, not that the parent wants to be in America and that the child should then be left to fend for himself or herself crossing the southern border. And also law, local law enforcement will be brought into some level of compliance or assistance with federal immigration authorities. That's really it. But if you were to thumb through the pages of major newspapers, if you were to look on most left-wing sites right now, you would get the sense that we are just entering some Orwellian nightmare and the Trump administration is preparing uh, massive detainee camps all over the country that eventually all of us are going to be sent to. It's just not true. Let's stick with the facts. Let's stick with the policy. And let's talk about what all this means and where it's going to go. All right, team. Buck will be back right after this break. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. All right, Team Buck, phones are open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK, B-U-C-K. 
But we're joined now by our guest, the one and only Kim Strassel. She is a columnist at the Wall Street Journal, where she's also a member of the editorial board and the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech, an excellent book. Kim, thank you so much for calling. Hi, Buck. So if we trade opinions, will I win? Um, with you, I, I'd be a little more concerned, Kim. But uh, g- generally speaking, I hope to give myself the edge with random calls. But who knows? I've got a brilliant audience too. Let's take uh, let's take the latest news of the day here on the immigration situation. Uh, we know I, I went through the guidance documents before, um, but DACA is going to stay in place. One thing I didn't get to: it seems to be the Trump administration is slowly tightening the screws on enforcement here, but this is an all-of-the-above all approach. He seems to be completely hedging his bets here, and I think in a, in a way that's actually very good for the immigration system. He said on the campaign trail, especially toward the end, that he was going to focus on those who were engaged in criminal acts in the United States. One thing that is interesting to me about these guidance documents is that They focus on, uh, and we have a lot of attention, obviously, on illegal immigrants, but it is notable that they are wide enough in scope that those, for instance, who are here, quote, lawfully, meaning those with green cards uh, who have committed criminal offenses, are also on the target screen, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Having a green card here does not in any way entitle you to stay um, if you have committed a crime. So he's got them. At the same time, The Dreamers Act is something I think it's very aspirational. Uh, Members of Congress want to work in a bipartisan fashion to try to codify it in some way. So he seems to be giving them the space to sit back and and try to make sure that those who were brought here by their parents, who are productive members of the American society, are not sent back through no fault of their own. Now, the travel ban, that was what we were expecting this week, also under the broad... Uh, the, the broad general uh, topic of immigration here. Uh, what we know is that it's supposed to be tailored to the specific objections that the three judges on that Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel cited. Do, you, when, do we know when that's coming out? And also, do you think it's going to be enough? Or do you think that there'll be a judicial objection soon after this newest executive order on immigration is unveiled? Look, we're talking about the Ninth Circuit here, so nothing would surprise me. And Given the way in which they looked at this first order, they really didn't have a legal leg to stand on, Buck, uh, but they decided to proceed anyway with the injun- upholding the injunction and not letting this proceed. The Trump administration is going to work very hard to try to come up with a tighter uh, enforcement mechanism here in terms of allowing people in, and, and that's to their benefit because you want something that if it works its way up the courts – can withstand judicial scrutiny. But I think that everyone should be prepared that the Ninth Circuit in particular, which is a a circuit known for being overturned by the Supreme Court, may well come up with a a crazy theory on anything that the Trump administration puts out. I wonder if the decision by Judge Brinkema down in, in Virginia, I think it was last week, where, as she wrote, this is just bigotry, plain and simple. She doesn't care because Trump said bigoted things in the campaign trail. This law or this executive order, I should say, is rooted in bigotry. And therefore, you know, she's she's against the whole thing. I wonder if that's where this fight then goes. They'll address the specific concerns about green card holders and uh, whether there's due notice given to people before they travel, before they're in process of traveling to the U.S., 
and maybe they'll even give some details on extreme vetting. But if religious bigotry becomes the entirety of the objection to this, I think we could see this dragging out for quite a while. And then I think it does probably make its way up to the Supreme Court. But I also want to ask, uh, speaking of bigotry, anti-Semitism is getting a lot of play in the press this week. Uh, Trump has denounced it. Uh, He has said that it is something that is uh, horrible and and he's going to stop it. It has to stop. But it seems like the press still is running with, well, now it's that Trump didn't speak about anti-Semitism and decry it soon enough for their liking. (laughs) It seems like he can't win. It's extraordinary. He can't win. I mean, look, this is a man who has close relatives who are of the Jewish faith. And we, so we've had this extraordinary focus on the Holocaust Day statement and the fact that there was no reference to Jews and whether or not there he's denouncing anti-Semitism in a more most aggressive way. Look, this sort of standard was not held to other people, and this is something that I think is just the mainstream media, again, trying to whip up controversy. And it's incredibly frustrating for the American people who – want to be hearing, look, we just got through the first month of his administration. People want to know what exactly has come out, what the executive orders mean, how it's going to affect their daily lives. Businesses are fascinated with the regulatory rollback, and instead we're having these daily controversies over things like anti-Semitism and if it actually exists, and, and much of it being driven by Stars on the outside that that are in the pop culture realm, like Milo Yiannopoulos, and it's not directly related to what the efforts of the Trump administration are doing at the moment. I, I had to I had to just take a moment to to just say, wow. Um, I, I think it was Slate or the Nation. I believe oh, maybe it was the Nation had a, its main piece up right now. Is is there really any difference between Milo Yiannopoulos and Trump? You know, there, there you go. No, no surprise. Wow. That's where that that's where they take it right away. But you know, Trump's comments denouncing uh, denouncing anti-Semitism are out there. Can we play? Do we have the audio? Can we play the audio of Trump's comments denouncing the? Thank you. Go. I will tell you that uh, anti-Semitism is horrible, and it's going to stop, and it has to stop. So you're denouncing it now, once and for all. Oh, of course, and I do it wherever I get a chance. I do it. It seems to me like Trump denounces this, and this is a completely made—I mean, Trump's a made-up controversy in the sense that Trump's uh, son-in-law is Orthodox Jewish. His daughter is a convert to Judaism. Uh, I, th- there's nothing about this guy in, in, the, in his life up to when he was running for office— has any? There's no evidence of anti-Semitism, but there's this insinuation that somehow he's an anti-Semite, or some people aren't insinuating. They're just coming out and saying it. They have to add that to he's a sexist, he's a racist, he's a xenophobe, he's anti-Muslim, and oh, by the way, he's also anti-Semitic, which would be quite a shock to some members of his family. It's extraordinary, and what is amazing to me, Buck, is the hypocrisy here in that many of the same people who are now suggesting that Trump is this scary, out-of-bounds, right-wing militant on these questions of sexism and homophobia and uh, anti-Semitic are the same people who liked to crow earlier this summer that Trump wasn't a real Republican, you know, and point out some of his past supposedly, uh, you know, things that he had done that made him not a true Republican, the fact that he was pro-choice for many years of his life, for instance. This is a guy who grew up in the the kind of polyglot environment of New York City. 
you know if you have looked at his business and his business dealings that there are women that have held high and important positions in his companies, uh, that he has worked with every manner of American, uh, any color and every class. I don't think that it's very easy to in any way pigeonhole him as some sort of person who is intolerant of other people, especially when he makes categorical statements to the contrary. So it's this is really dirt by association, and it's the best the press seems to be able to get on him at times. Yeah, and he—he's whether it, I believe he visited uh, he visited a museum today and said it was uh, eye opening. And I saw the press, uh, saw members of the press, including a New York Times reporter. Oh, it was eye opening. And then all the commentary is, oh, you mean he didn't know any of this stuff beforehand? <laughs> it's you know, there there is a large wing of the media right now that is anything Trump says is bad. It does. Trump can say good morning and he's a bigot. Trump can say how are things going and it's because he's a racist. And that they've created this construct of Trump the. The, the always evil, always bad guy out of somebody who, as you point out, is a real estate and media mogul from born and raised in New York City. But they really like to conjure this notion of, of him as like a member of, of the Klan in some backwoods area somewhere. He's a bigot. He's a rube. He's a hick. And it just has no bearing on reality. But but people seem convinced of this. And I mean people who have big followings and fancy platforms in the media. If the press wants to be considered with any validity by a significant portion of this country, it's going to have to step back, remove its personal feelings about Donald Trump, and begin to report about this administration in terms of its actions and its consequences. Uh, you know, it's funny. It's just they're, they're triggered so easily. That's the word I like to use, where anything he does, they go running off. It's like a magpie after something glittery. And there, there are, I think, benefits maybe to Trump for this and that it's misdirection. They're not paying attention to anything he's doing in a substantive fashion, so they can't complain about that, I suppose. But on the other hand, they're just creating these media firestorms on a day-by-day basis. They don't do themselves any favor. Let's all remember all the conversation about Trump's lower approval ratings than other presidents at this period in their White Houses is nothing compared to the low approval rating and sinking approval rating of the press, which was in place well before Donald Trump ever became president. And the press has got to think hard about why they're so little trusted by the American people and what they need to do to fix that. Yeah, the press is about as popular as an infected hair follicle. I mean, really, no one's particularly excited (laughs) about where the media is these days. So... Nonetheless, that's a nice vision there, Bobby. <laughs> Sorry, that's a little crap. Apolo- apologies. Uh, Kim Strassel is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. She's a member of the Journal's editorial board. Check out her book, everybody, The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. Kim, thank you so much for hanging out. Great to have you. No, thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right, team, hitting a break. We'll be right back. Buck is back with you on America Now. Thank you for being here. 844-900-2825. That's the number here if you want to give us a ring. I just want to say on the way in today, I walked past a a coffee shop. And uh, right now the studio I'm in is in a very, very nice, very trendy part of Manhattan. And I walked past a a coffee shop where I'm sure you could find however you like your $5 latte. They can make it happen for you. And they had a sign outside that said, Refugees Welcome. And I just thought to myself, oh, wow, they're really extending themselves, aren't they? Refugees Welcome. Uh, There's also a banner reading Refugees Welcome that was unfurled on the Statue of Liberty this afternoon here in New York City. 
It's 20 feet by 3 feet uh, that somebody put up at the Statue of Liberty. So, yep, this is now a thing. It's a meme. Once it's a meme, then you know the left is taking it seriously. But, yeah, that coffee shop, if you if you manage to uh, get from the, the coast of Turkey to Greece up through Europe and you find your way all the way, all the way into downtown Manhattan, uh, there's a coffee shop that's not going to kick you out. Not that any of them would, but I guess it's fun for them to pretend that they're doing their part for the cause of refugees. Colin in Grand Rapids, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. How's it going? Shield tie. Shield tie, man. I'm good. Hey, I just wanted to ask you a quick question. Just kind of, so when you were growing up, like, how did your parents uh, affect, like, your political views? And because I feel, feel like we live in a society now where I'm 24 and nowadays everyone my age is just so like affected by the media and and I just feel like they've lost all like I don't know just because everyone sees it as so wrong and going to their college classes and whatnot. I didn't grow up in a in a political family, really. I don't think anybody was uh, all that invested in in politics uh, any more than just staying uh, staying informed about current events. I, I'm from a New York City family, though, so I think that our our perceptions of the world and and of uh, the need for government to take action to protect us after 9/11, there was a a shift, there was a change, um, and I think that that informed very. I mean, it changed the course of my life. I went to the CIA because of 9/11. Uh, I know there are many others who uh, millions who have served in the armed forces and joined up. Uh, many of them joined up because of 9/11. So uh, I think that there was a that was a, perhaps when we started paying more attention to politics, quite honestly. But I don't I, I how did I become who I am in terms of thinking this way, even though I'm from New York City? I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you, Colin. Just sort of just sort of happened. I think everybody else, they all think that I'm crazy. And I think that all of all of them who disagree with me or, or, or rather all of them who think that I'm crazy, I think they're crazy. Uh, I, I see. Also, the the hypocrisy, it's really not possible to live a uh, a sort of elitist, uh, liberal, urban, you know, city lifestyle uh, and not fall into all kinds of hypocrisy. Right. These are people who, you know, they're all a lot of them are, are very in favor of of public schools, but, you know, they want to go to either a Catholic school or a private school. You see a lot of that in New York City. Uh, they're all in favor of everyone else paying higher taxes, but they want to take advantage of every tax break they possibly can and pay for. You know, you just see a lot of that. Um, and I think that's uh, that was part of my political awakening and, and also going to going to a college where and this is true of many colleges across the country, a vast majority of them, I think the leftist indoctrination just became too much to uh, to bear. It was just too divorced from reality. And I, I guess I should talk about that at some length because there's some interesting uh, worthwhile anecdotes, I think, from my own college process of that indoctrination and what all that meant. And I think a lot of people, it would resonate with them today. But Colin from Grand Rapids, thank you very much for calling in. I want to talk to you about our sponsor this hour, Goldline. Look, the federal government has been involved in all kinds of machinations behind the scenes and with the Fed, monetary policy. They're doing everything they can to make sure the music doesn't stop. But do you think that they really know what they're doing? And do you think that they'll be able to keep inflation at bay forever? you think that they'll be able to protect the dollar over the long term? Well, look, there's that. There's also the threat of a digital currency. There are all kinds of problems that we really need to address. And if you want to protect yourself, there's no better way to do it than with gold and silver. 
Uh, unlike digital currencies today, gold and silver are tangible. They are assets. They are things that you can hold and have and maintain value over time. And the best place to go and get your gold is Goldline. They're a proven winner for people buying and selling precious metals for more than half a century. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and a five-star rating from an independent customer review site. And they have price protection programs that can protect against market fluctuations for up to a year. So don't wait until interest rates rise, until all of a sudden people recognize, then it's going to be late. You'll be late in the game. Do it now. Diversify. Protect yourself Invest in gold and silver and do it through Goldline. The only gold company I trust is Goldline. 877-322-COIN. That's 877-322-2646. Be sure to read Goldline's important risk disclosures to see if buying gold is right for you. 877-322-COIN. That's 877-322-2646. And we'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Buck Sexton, back with you all. Thank you so much for being here. 844-900-2825, if you would uh, like to call in. 844 844- Nine hundred two eight two five. So, uh, the media, of course, when it comes to a president they don't like, one of the places they like to go is around the world. They like to have a global view of our presidency, and that's a, a means of trying to convince all the sophisticated people in this country that, oh, well, you can't like. You can't like this president because look at what people around the world say about him. And they run these public opinion polls. And, of course, most Republicans that I know could care less what foreigners think of their president. Uh, but uh, this was a particularly interesting interesting exercise. CNN decided to run a piece where they interviewed North Koreans, everyday North Koreans in North Korea, in Pyongyang, the capital, and ask them what they think of our president uh let's uh, oh no we i was going to play that audio for you but we don't have the audio do we have the audio um yes we do north korea uh, north korean citizens rather being asked about what they think about president trump please play um i do, so we do not have oh no we have matt all right, let's do that. Let's take Matt. I, we'll play that audio later on. We got Matt Schlapp now. He is chairman of the American Conservative Union and CPAC. It's going to be more fun than listening to North Korean on, man on the street interviews. Anyway, Matt, thank you for calling in. Buck, I, I was wondering if you wanted me to start talking as if I was that video. I was kidding. Uh, yeah, sorry, we, we were about to go there for a second. I was just, just, <laughs> just teeing it up. We'll get back to it, though. We'll get it for everybody. All right, Matt, so we got to take care of this one right away. The... Uh, I type CPAC into Google. First thing that comes up is a whole bunch of stories about Milo Yiannopoulos. I know everyone's sure. asked you, and so you're. this is like the, the the story that you have to comment on, and I don't like to be the guy yeah, that makes you course. comment on the same thing everyone else is. But, okay, what was the purpose of the invite, and what made you change your mind? I think the major purpose was a reaction to what has happened on too many college campuses where debate gets stifled and shut down, and Milo and others who are voices from the right 
uh, have been shut down and, and told to shut up. And it just happened at Berkeley with Milo. And as soon as that happened, I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, you know, uh, conservatives can handle uh, a free and open uh, conversation, even when offensive things are said and, uh, and we should invite him. Then he uh, actually came to visit me and very respectfully asked to come to CPAC and, we asked him some questions about his association, rumored associations with the alt-right and stuff, which he said he does not agree with. And, uh, and we said, look, we, we might consider inviting you to talk uh, very specifically on the question of free speech on college campuses and what it's like when your rights are infringed. And, uh, and in conjunction with that, we wanted to make sure he sat down and answered uh, you know, the tough questions. He said some things that are very offensive and uh, – and we wanted the, our our attendees to get the chance to hear his answers. And over the weekend, obviously, some additional material uh, came to light, came to my attention. That it wasn't was, new uh, material, isn't that correct? I, I found that out today. It was. Me, it's been around for a while. To me, it was, and I think to most people, it was because to most people, they didn't realize this, which is why this whole series of uh, of professional setbacks for him occurred. Uh, you know, with his book and with his job at Breitbart, because. They all saw this as new material, and uh, and we certainly were unaware of it, and uh, and we had a lot of people that were advocating for him. Was he the keynote to, speaker, Matt? Is that accurate? I had read never. that. No, never. You know, it's one of these things. You get an urban legend. There was a Hollywood uh, reporter who said that. No, our keynote speaker has been Michael Reagan uh, from the very beginning, the son of President Reagan, who came to CPAC thirteen times. He's going to speak Friday night, so we're really excited about that keynote. Now, Milo's obviously not going, and I know he had a press conference today, and he's gotten a, a, a lot of attention of, of exactly the kind that somebody in, in his position does not want, and I don't want to pile on. I just wanted to give you a chance to tell everybody listening now what, what the, uh, the dust-up was all about there. And so we can move on then to uh, some of the other things that will be, uh, be happening at CPAC. Um, starts tomorrow. Who are some of the exciting speakers? Who's who can, whose name will we see up on the marquee at CPAC this year? I know we got we got Trump visiting, don't we? We got President Trump Friday morning. We have Vice President Pence Thursday night. We have Michael Reagan Friday night. We have uh, Senator Ted Cruz and Mark Levin in a conversation. Uh, I believe on Thursday we have Reince Priebus and uh, Steve Bannon appearing together. Uh, and I'm and I've got the duty of, uh, of convening that conversation uh, on Thursday. We have Sheriff Dave Clark, who's going to close us out uh, on Saturday. We have a lot of interesting panels, including a, uh, a series of speeches on uh, what it means to be a conservative, how the alt right is not right. We have conversations about three basic uh, uh, policy areas, the family and culture, uh, national security and the economy. We believe each of those three legs of the conservative stool should be talked about equally. Now, it's a conservative political action uh, conference, but this movement right now, the Trump movement, as many have pointed out, Trump's past, not uh, orthodox conservatism, to be sure. Uh, What do do you think the the base is going to be discussing this year? What what, what do you think will get hashed out among the various, what do you have, 10,000 attendees? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. that there will be some interesting exchanges between those who are more traditional conservatives and the Trump movement, which is really a, a hybrid, right, of populism, conservatism. Uh, I, I don't know. You could probably throw some other things in there, too. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's 
more commonly uh, a populist conservative. I don't know. You know, this is the thing when you're an outsider and you haven't been in public office. I think there's a lot of people that are watching him to see the kind of president he's going to be. And, uh, you know, so that's that's the hard part. Usually by the time we elect someone to the presidency, they've had a long political career, <laughs> you know, and it's no surprise how they're going to act in office with this president. Um, it's uh, every day uh, people are, are, are kind of making judgments. But I think you're right. This, this, this is, you know, I think this is a more practical CPAC. I think this is a CPAC where we're not talking about what we would do if we got power. We're talking about what we got to do now that we have the responsibility of government. And so I think a lot of these panels are going to be a lot more focused about specific legislation that's going through the process and, uh, and then what the White House might do in regards to it. Can people watch on live stream, those who can't be there physically in the D.C. area for this but want to get as much of, a, uh, much of the CPAC action as they can? Where should they go? Yeah, they should go to conservative.org or cpac.org, uh, either one of those websites, and get the information for how that's done. I mean, uh, we're partnering with uh, with Facebook and Twitter and other um, uh, and other uh, social media companies, and I'm sure there's going to be a variety of ways to watch it. And we encourage people to watch it. Uh, not everybody can get down to the Gaylord National uh, starting on Thursday, and if you can't, please please make sure you watch it on television. It should be on C-SPAN as well. Matt Schlapp is the chairman of the American Conservative Union and CPAC. CPAC kicks off tomorrow. Everybody should check it out if they can. Check it out uh, online at a minimum. Matt, really appreciate you calling in. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Buck. Bye-bye. Yep. So uh, Milo no longer going to CPAC. Milo lost uh, or resigned to be uh, to be as accurate as I can. He resigned from Breitbart. I did not see his press conference at 3 o'clock today. I had uh, other business that I had to uh, tend to. And uh, you just see that if you run up against the edge enough times, if you are a provocateur, if you're somebody who specifically tries to uh, and, and benefits from oh, in terms of career and exposure, uh, you say the things that you think other people can't get away with saying, I know that there is an appeal with that, but you also can take it too far. You can go to a place where even those who want or who do support uh, free and even offensive speech will say, well, that's actually too much. There is such a thing as, as too much. And I think uh, Milo, to his, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it to you to decide how, how much of a discrediting of, of him for each, of, each and every one of you gets to make that decision on your own. But clearly it has had negative impact at this phase of his career. And I, again, I am not somebody who ever, even with uh, those on the left whom I find their ideas across the board pretty terrible, and some of them are really odious people on top of that, when you see this moment of crisis in someone else's career, uh, who's trying to be a, a man or a woman of ideas, who's trying to present themselves, put themselves out there, I try to give as much leeway and as much uh, of a of a hands-off position as I can when I see that somebody's really in, in a crisis. And he is in a crisis that he has brought about by saying the kind of things that you really just can't say. Um, and he's now admitted that. I, I hope that his supporters, as such as they are out there, and they, there's a lot of them, um, who were I saw on social media really viciously attacking people that were saying that what Milo said was not okay, 
Well, now Milo has said, okay, I agree. It was not okay. I, I misspoke. I used the wrong word. I shouldn't have said these things. I don't believe these things. He has repudiated his comments. So I would hope that his supporters who were trolling people that I know on social media will stop trolling people and just say, okay, he said he's sorry, and he will move on to the degree that he can from here. Um, but this media this media game is is can be very powerful and it can be intoxicating and you can feel like your work is incredibly worthwhile but you always have to stay grounded and stay humble and i i think when your brand becomes a a, a ostentatious lack of humility and, and and you think you have very few if any boundaries and you can say anything you will run up against eventually as we've seen here you'll run up against problems there was a part of me that wondered at what point will Milo, who has much more leeway than others, very interesting that he is a is a critic of identity politics. But I think uh, the fact that he, well, one has a British accent, which still to me, I don't understand why Americans think a British accent means. And, and I, I'm not saying that Milo is not smart. I'm not weighing into that at all. But people are so impressed by British accents still. And yeah, there are plenty of brilliant Brits out there, and for whatever reason, a fair amount of them happen to make their way into the U.S. media. But having a British accent does not equal, I should listen to this person. But for many people, that is a, I know this is a, a bit of a diversion from the main topic at hand here, but for many people, that is not how they see it. And I want to explain to them that, you know, okay, I could sit here too and have a British accent and do the whole, you know, different versions of British accents too. Doesn't mean that what I'm saying is any more valid or less valid. And I wish that there would be uh, less of a, with people automatically, it's just such a, it's such a lift to the intellectual content of what everyone is saying. Now I understand why so many of these celebrities have these kind of fake and pseudo-British accents because they feel like it's good for their career. Um, but anyway, uh, back on to a more serious matter. I, 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 don't, I don't like seeing anybody uh, burn down their own career. And what he said was really dumb and bad. And I'm not, I, uh, that's all you can say. It's just really stupid, horrible stuff to say. I also feel bad whenever someone's burning down their own career that way. So, uh, we'll see what happens with Milo going forward. Um, we'll see. And uh, we have CPAC. Check it out. Conservative.org, I think Match Lap said. We're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. All right, so I, I promised you all that we would play this audio uh, for you of CNN interviewing North Koreans on what they think of Donald Trump because I I'm hoping they did this with full awareness that they're in the most totalitarian society on earth i mean this is this is more this is more totalitarian even than a meeting of ivy league professors in their off time i mean this is like next level totalitarian this is the real deal the real thing uh, and they are not allowed to share their opinions they are not allowed to really have opinions and they've been thoroughly brainwashed but you got this cnn correspondent who wants to ask north koreans what they think of donald trump I suppose this is just to tell us more about North Koreans, but I also have to think that there's there's maybe some part of this of this think piece or not this think piece of this man on the street piece uh, where they figured here is yet another country where the people are not supportive of the new American president. Uh, and when we're talking about North Korea, that's really a an endorsement of the Trump presidency, I would think. The, the less the average North Korean is, is favorably disposed towards our president, probably the better he is in dealing with North Korea, given all the propaganda that the North Korean people are subjected to and everything else. But I want to play for you this clip. I said I would, and here we are. Please play. 
We know President Trump by name, says this researcher. We also know a former President Obama. But we really don't care who's in power. We only care if they stop their hostile policy towards my country. I think it would be a good idea for President Trump to meet with my supreme leader, says this computer engineer, but he'd have to be willing to put an end to America's hostile policy. It doesn't matter at all, says this housewife. Yeah, uh, you're not going to get much of the way of insight about a Trump presidency by asking the most closed society on earth, by asking people who are under active surveillance at the time of this interview with CNN uh, with what is clearly an American journalist. I mean, there's no such thing as visiting North Korea without being under active surveillance the whole time. You're only allowed to see certain parts of the country. There have been uh, numerous documentaries. I know the very well-known Vice documentary piece on travel to North Korea by the uh, Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, There have been others as well. Fascinating National Geographic uh, documentary, in fact, on these doctors who traveled to North Korea in order to restore sight for many North Koreans uh, by doing cataract surgery, which, as I understand it, I'm not an ophthalmologist or a surgeon, and, and nor do I play one on radio, uh, but uh, is is a pretty straightforward procedure for any well any normal Western trained doctor to do, or any trained doctor anywhere to do. Uh, and so they go and they do this just as a humanitarian gesture. They fix uh, eyesight of North Koreans and they go from being blind because of the cataracts to being able to see quite well. And the real moment in this documentary where it all comes together and all makes sense is that these visiting doctors um, give these these people. And it is, it is tr- unbelievable in the true sense of the word that there could be a place like North Korea that exists. Uh, and it is a reminder to the rest of the world what what true absolutist statism is like and that it is possible that this is not just something theoretical. It's not just in Orwell's 1984. There are there is a real life example. Um, and there are other countries that are giving us lesser versions of the same example. I believe I saw a piece earlier this week that in Venezuela, there's a, a widespread weight loss because of all of the. Uh, the food shortages that are happening there, which is you know terrible in and of itself. Uh, food shortage, of course, nothing new to North Korea either. Um, but these doctors that go, they show up in North Korea. I think it was a National Geographic special I saw it on Netflix. These doctors go to North Korea. They restore sight to these uh, impoverished and uh, terrified people living in this police state who recognize that one wrong utterance, one misstep, or even the perception of a misstep, or just for whatever reason— the government decides on a whim. Uh, you could be sent to a concentration camp. You could be uh, executed, any number of things. And But these people turn. They've been given their sight back in their first instinct because they are so uh, well-trained and, and so terrorized, really, by the regime is they turn and they bow and cry and thank the portrait of uh, Kim Jong-il, who was the, leader at the, t- the dear leader at the time. Now, of course, it's Kim Jong-un who just had his brother, as we talked about on this show last week, had his brother assassinated in Malaysia, a couple of female assassins in the airport, headlock, chemical over the mouth, uh, straight out of the pages of a spy novel, a, a an assassination meant also to send a message, not just to eliminate a possible rival to the uh, seat of power in North Korea, but I think also to send a message 
Anyway, these North Koreans turn and they thank, once they've got their, their eyesight restored, they turn and thank the portrait in the room because it is very, it is truly Orwellian. You do have Big Brother, or in this case, Big uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, watching you. Uh, and so they thank him. Anyway, North Korea, they're asking North Koreans about Donald Trump. I hope they're doing this to show what a horrifying prison camp North Korea is and not to pile on to how bad Trump is in some way. But there's a part of me that thinks maybe they're like, yeah, even North Korea doesn't like Trump. And yeah, we've got more. Stay with me. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. All right, Team Buck, we are back. And we are joined by Mark Krikorian. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. He's a nationally recognized expert in immigration issues. And he's quoted in a New York Times piece today. We're going to talk about that. Mark, great to have you. Glad to be here. Uh, first, let's start with, um, I, I just want to ask you if, if you could, and I may have asked you this before, Mark, on, on one of your very uh, kind appearances on uh, previous radio shows. Uh, the claim that immigrant, and this was in the New York Times piece that also uh, quotes you on, on a separate matter, and I'll bring that up in just a second, but the notion that the uh, that, that illegal immigrants commit fewer crimes than the native, uh, native-born Americans, what is true and what is not true about that? Where do they get this? Well, there is research that shows that. Uh, the problem is that the quality of the data they're using is not very good, and it's not clear. I'm not going to tell you that, that we know that um, immigrants commit more crimes than the native-born. We don't know that either. The fact is that um, the FBI and various other uh, organ- law enforcement organizations don't really want to know, and so the quality of the data is very limited. I mean, one study that Pew used and Pew Research Center, it's a you know, pretty well-respected outfit. I mean, they obviously lean liberal, but they're not hacks. I mean, the work they do is real. They use census data for some of this stuff about the number of people incarcerated. The problem is that um, our research director looked into it a few years ago, and the information in the census on what they call the institutionalized population. In other words, people in prisons or other institutions like that. And in prisons, it's often filled out by like the, war, the warden's secretary. So who knows whether it's correct or not? A lot of times, you know, it's my, the basic point is you can't really say that immigrants commit less crime than the native-born or that we know that they commit more crime than the native-born. The data is all over the place. Okay, and also I just wanted to note that the New York Times refers to uh, your organization, the Center for Immigration Studies, of which you are the executive director, as a an institution that su- supports quote restricted immigration end quote. Uh, do, do, who who is there? Does the New York Times support unrestricted immigration? I'm just wondering. Is that is yeah, that how well, it's set up? I, I thought uh, restricted immigration would just mean that yeah, of course, aren't there always restrictions on our immigration policies or or no? Uh, apparently not. I mean, the logical conclusion would be that um, they support letting anybody who wants to come in to come here. I mean, it's uh, and, you know, that's not just making it up, because look, what did Hillary say during the campaign, during one of the primary debates? She went open borders, Mark. No one even yeah. believes me when I say this now. Her and her and Bernie yeah. were arguing for who was more pro open borders, basically. And, yeah. And 
I mean, they, she was pressed by Jorge Ramos, you know, the Univision commentator slash, you know, supposed newsman. And she, he was pressed, and she repeated it, so it wasn't some slip of the tongue. She said, any, basically said, anyone in the world should be allowed to come here and not be deported unless they are convicted of a violent felony. Not just charged, not a nonviolent felony, but convicted of a violent felony. And if they avoid that, they, if they sneak across the border or overstay a visa after lying to our visa officers, if they avoid being convicted of a violent felony, they get to stay. To me, what that means is unlimited immigration. Yeah, that's unrestricted immigration. I just think it's interesting. Of course, the Times, I think, this is probably no shock to you, Mark, meant that as, you know, that's a that's a, a, a little slight meant to show people reading the Times, well, Mark is calling from an organization that is not open borders. What a what a savage Mark is. Yeah, troglodyte. Uh, yeah, yeah, but right. that's that's what they that's what they mean with restricted immigration. Anyway, I know you know that, but I just had to have a chuckle here. I'm like, oh, the New York Times, because I guess they are in favor of unrestricted immigration. But I want to get down to uh, this cost of a border wall versus the cost of illegal immigration uh, on cis.org which is your organization you break this down let's talk about this people are saying the the border wall is expensive and other people point out i mean 19 or 20 billion dollars to the federal government is is really a drop in the bucket especially on an issue of any national importance but what is the cost of the border wall versus the cost of illegal immigration how do you break that down in your piece well we use the estimates for the cost of the wall from what they're talking about uh in the senate 12 to 15 billion dollars so that's the starting point we used. And what we did was look at National Academy of Sciences data on the fiscal impact, in other words, the taxes paid minus the government services used, of illegal immigrants. Uh, where people buy education, and we kind of, I mean, there's some, you know, we massage the numbers a little, but not in a dishonest way, but just as a way to get to the number. And our estimate was that the each illegal border crosser, not every illegal alien, because other illegal aliens come in on visas and overstay. They're usually better off and more educated. But every illegal alien border crosser costs a fiscal drain to taxpayers of something like $75,000. Um, so that our estimate was that if the border fencing wall, whatever it is, stops just 12%, of the expected uh, crossings over the next decade, the amount of money saved by keeping those illegal immigrants out would totally pay for the wall. And this idea that the that illegals who are border crossers, as you point out, who cross the border specifically, um, that they are a net drain on the economy. I, I assume that this is a very on taxpayers. I'm yeah. sorry to the taxpayers. Yeah. Uh, I assume that this is uh, a contentious point with some, or is is the data pretty clear on this? Well, I mean, this is our. We're using estimates from the National Academies of Sciences. Uh, this is not something we made up. Now there are some, um, you know, kind of loony libertarians who say, no, welfare completely pays for itself because importing low-skilled workers that we subsidize that literally cannot earn enough to feed their children and have to be paid for, and their children have to be fed by you and me, that they're actually a great economic boon, and they create all of these. I mean, it's all kind of baloney, actually. Right. I mean, I've heard libertarians say activity, they're open borders advocates, some of them, not all of them, but some of the ones that I've heard talking about this, and I've even debated a few of them myself, 
they say, well, it increases GDP because there's more activity. Well, that's not that that's not in and of itself a good thing if it also means, as you point out here, that uh, you've got a seventy five thousand dollar deficit to the taxpayer for each illegal border crosser. Right. I mean, it's like losing money on each unit, but you're going to make it up in volume. You know what I mean? It's the old joke about that. And so so, no, there's a, this is clearly um, illegal immigration costs money. And the often the response is. And even, frankly, legal immigration probably costs more money because legal immigrants are el- poor legal immigrants are eligible for more programs than poor illegal immigrants. But the, often the response is, well, you know, that's fine, so let's just keep them from welfare. Let's build a wall around the welfare state. Well, uh, does anybody think we're going to let people die on the steps of the emergency room because they can't pay? Of course not. I mean, we have federal law that says you can't do that. And right, well, know, this is part of how Obamacare was sold to us. By the way, I was, I remember this. It was that you know illegals and 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 people are already using the emergency room for first line care, so we should get everybody health care. I mean, you know, that's a whole separate discussion. But yeah. overuse of emergency rooms, including by illegals, was part of the the push for Obamacare. And the problem is, uh, you know, that obviously didn't work out the way it was intended. The solution isn't some kind of socialist medicine. It isn't some kind of wall around the welfare state. It's not letting in poor people from abroad into a modern welfare state like ours. You just don't, once you let them in, the game is over. Well, this, not- this is the next question I want to ask you, because I know that part of the policy uh, directives or the, the, the guidance uh, documents that were released by DHS earlier today had to do with benefits fraud and how that will now be that if, you, if you're getting benefits illegally, you could be on the list for deportations going forward under a Trump administration. Do we have any sense of the scale of benefit fraud when it comes to Ill- illegal aliens? Do we track yeah. it? Do we know? The issue actually isn't benefit fraud, because what the law says is that if you're a public charge, which means if you're living off the taxpayer, if you're potentially going to be a public charge, you're not supposed to be let in. And if you become a public charge, you're supposed to be removed unless your sponsor pays for the welfare that you used. The thing is that 51% of immigrant-headed households use at least one welfare program. So, I mean, this is an enormous problem that we have allowed, and we're not going to be deporting all those people just as a practical matter, but we need to stop letting people move here in the first place who are going to who are likely to become dependent and you're talking about legal immigrants there right Legal and illegal put together legal and legal put Um, together okay do we do we have specifics on uh illegals and their access to to benefits programs do we do we even know uh we have estimates about that that percentage is actually um uh, is is I'm actually don't even have it in front of me, but I'm looking for it. But the point is that illegal immigrants themselves are eligible only for a limited number of welfare programs um, because they're because they're illegal. So that there are some things like women, infants, and children nutrition program that illegal immigrants can benefit from. But the real cost comes from the children of illegal immigrants who are eligible as U.S. citizens for all kinds of welfare. And, and if they become public charges, then they're in viol- I mean they're in not supposed they're not supposed to be public charges based on existing immigration law even if they are here legally under uh, birthright yeah. citizenship. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, well, the thing is if you're a US citizen, if you're a US born citizen, then those 
public charge rules don't apply to you. They oh, right. Sorry. Pardon me. To, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they apply only to non-citizens. But the fact is, you know the way we've gotten around that? It's not just the government said, ah, we're not going to pay any attention to it. They redefined what welfare means to only mean an actual cash, envelope of cash or a check, so that food stamps do not count as welfare. Medicaid, which is the biggest welfare program, just doesn't count as welfare. AFDC even, which is cash, doesn't count as welfare. The only thing is um, TANF. Uh, what they call... Um, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families? Right. used to be AFDC. I, I meant EITC when I said this before. Temporary Assistance for Needy Families and cash money at the state level are the only things they count as welfare. And if you're not collecting those, but living in public housing, on Medicaid, using food stamps, the, your children are being fed by the government, all of those things... You're self-sufficient, supposedly, according to our Alice in Wonderland definitions. One more uh, question for you, Mark, before we got to get into a break here, and that is the New York Times headline right now. Trump details plans to deport millions of immigrants. Is he planning to deport millions of immigrants? You think that's what he's preparing for? No, no, that's nonsense. Uh, the memos that they uh, released today are basically implementing the executive orders on border enforcement and immigration enforcement. And the basic point of those memos is that no illegal immigrant is is now exempt from immigration law because under obama most illegal immigrants were basically told you have zero chance of being deported don't sweat it this doesn't mean they're all going to be deported it means they all are potentially deportable if they come to the attention of the authorities all right mark krikorian is executive director of the center for immigration studies Check out his latest at CIS.org. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Buck. Team, phone lines are open. 844-900-2825. Light them up here in the Freedom Hut. And we'll be back right after this break. I mentioned before that uh, you're seeing now these pieces. One's on The Nation. I think I said it was The Nation, which is a far left, far left website magazine, a magazine with with like hundreds of subscribers, from what I understand, uh, at least hundreds, is is Milo Yiannopoulos all that different from Trump? That's the main piece there. And then you also have, not to be outdone, the New York Times, Milo is the mini Donald. So now that you've had this uh, young media figure who has just, for, for right now, blown up his career... Um, of course, there's all these people that are trying to score the additional political points of tying him to the president and, and not just tangent, uh, tangent, <laughs> tangentially, sorry, um, but directly to say that he, he is the mini Donald. This is in the opinion page of the New York Times. There you go. So no surprise there trying to score more political points with this. Not not enough that uh, Milo is, at least for now, it seems, maybe he'll make a comeback or I don't know, but uh He's certainly paying a price for indefensible comment. There is such a thing, even for a person who tests the boundaries of free speech, there is such a thing as indefensible comments. I mean, I could sit here and go through any number of them in, in, in concept with you, but I don't think I need to. I think you can figure out for yourself what those lines are. I know you can, and uh, those lines were crossed here. So not good. Um, he's And he's paying, look, he's paying the price for it. He's paying the price for speech. What he said wasn't illegal, but... It wasn't good. Wasn't uh, was highly unwise is a kind way of putting it. Um, and 
I have to go to a call now. We've got Emma in Pennsylvania on WRAK. Emma, welcome to the Buck Saxon Show. What I want to say is all these illegal immigrants by the million invaded our country and our government are forcing our working American citizen taxpayers to support them. This is not right. We can't afford to. They get medical treatment that we can't even afford for ourselves, and we have to pay for it. Let's not forget it's the American working taxpayers that are forced to pick up the bills. We simply can't afford it. No, it's it's theft. It's theft by government. It's this that your tax dollars are going towards people that are not even supposed to be in the country in the first place is is wrong. That's right, and we have enough needy people of our own here to take care of. We ought to be spending the money on our American citizens who earn the money, I, and not spending it on illegal immigration. And another thing is, we don't owe foreigners a better life. We owe it to our American citizens here. And it's not giving our citizens a better life by taxing them to, to foot the bill for illegal immigrants who have no right to be here in the first place. And we have no obligation to take in even legal immigrants. We can refuse. We are a sovereign nation. What we're fighting for here is our sovereignty. If other nations want to commit national suicide, that's their business. That's not who we are. We are a sovereign nation. We are the United States of America. We define who should come in here. We define what our immigration laws are to be. Not a country has a right to tell us what our immigration laws should be. That's presumptuous on their part. And another thing, we aren't breaking up anybody's family. They broke up those illegal immigrants, broke up their own family by coming into our country legally. And when we deport them, they're free to take their family with them. Eloquently and well and well stated, Emma. Thank you for for calling in uh, from Pennsylvania and WRAK. Uh, appreciate it very much. Um, yeah, this is at the heart of the Trump movement, everyone. This notion, this radical notion, just like the radical immigration enforcement notions, the Trump administration is forwarding, like we're going to obey the law. Now you have this radical notion of we're going to have a country that establishes its sovereignty, that has control of its borders. And that privileges its own citizens' interests over the interests of people who are outside of its borders, who are non-citizens. Uh, that's crazy, I know, to the left. They, they reject all of that. Um, but it's something that we're going to continue to talk about here in the Freedom Hunt. All right. Sponsor this hour, everybody, is ZipRecruiter. Look, are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough if you really want to find the absolute best candidates out there so if you want to find the perfect hire you need to post all your jobs on all the top sites now and you can do it with ziprecruiter.com you post your job the 200 plus job sites including social media networks like facebook and twitter all with a single click you find candidates in any city or industry nationwide just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ziprecruiter's easy to use interface no juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com buck. 
That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Buck. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Buck. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. All right, Team Buck, we are back, and we're joined by Ami Horowitz. He's a filmmaker whose latest documentary focuses on the immigrant violence in Sweden. It is called Stockholm Syndrome. Ami, thanks for joining. Hey, it's always a pleasure, man. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you. So let's just, for the purposes of of setting all this up in the right context, so Trump was at his rally in Melbourne on Saturday, and he mentioned something about Sweden. Here's what he had to say. You look at what's happening in Germany. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden. Who would believe this? Sweden. They took in large numbers. They're having problems like they never thought possible. You look at what's happening in Brussels. You look at what's happening all over the world. Take a look at Nice. Take a look at Paris. Okay, so the president there was focusing for a moment on Sweden and referenced a segment on Fox News, or was referencing, it came out later, a segment on Fox News that featured your documentary. Now, before we get into what your documentary uh, depicts and what you learned from your travels to Sweden to look at this issue. Worth noting that there was a lot of mockery in the press saying there was no Swedish terrorist attack last night and this is nonsense. And there was even a CNN politics piece about how the Swedes were all making fun of how dumb Trump is on this, more or less. And then last night there was a riot in a suburb of Stockholm, in an immigrant dominated suburb, <laughs> cars set on fire, rocks thrown at police. You know, uh, mayhem on the streets, something Sweden is not used to. And now all of a sudden people are taking this more seriously. You were over there. You dealt with some of this in your documentary. What is Stockholm Syndrome as it uh, pertains to the immigrant problem in Sweden? Listen, uh, the origin of the name and the reason why we we chose it, yeah, it's cute, but it's very descriptive about what is going on in Sweden today, that despite all the obvious reality, the, the, the clear statistical evidence, the clear anecdotal evidence, I mean, look at the, look at the riots just happened yesterday. I mean, you could, it couldn't have come at a, a better time. You know, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm not I use that word. Uh, right, you're not pro-riot, uh, but you're saying for the purposes of this conversation, yeah, it's, it's worth uh, discussing, yeah. But the Swedes are literally denying reality to, 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 their, their, to the point of pathology, I think. And at the end of that, of that, of that the, maybe the most telling part of that entire, my entire video, Stockholm Syndrome, so at the end I go around and ask Swedes, hey, do you think there's an Islamic immigration problem in this country that's leading to violence? And not a single I – can, I can't stress this enough – not a single – person said we might have a problem. Not even we do have a problem. Not we might have a problem we should look into. It was absolute denial. Again, I think a pathological denial. And, and, and furthermore, if you even insinuate that there may be a connection, then what are you, Buck? You're a racist. You're a xenophobe. You're an Islamophobe. I wanted to play a clip from your documentary short here where you interview a Swedish journalist who has studied the issue. Let's play that, please. What we have is, first of all, a very a, a Swedish culture. Then we bring in, last, like last year, 190,000 people that come from a very different culture, a culture that isn't liberal, that has radically different views on women, on sexuality, on gender, on all of these things. There's an explosion. 
in order to come here and to prosper, you have to adapt to that culture. And that what we're doing in Europe is the complete opposite. They are saying, how can we adapt to you? How can we adapt to you? Uh, the assimilation process in Sweden seems to be a, uh, seems to be hitting some bumps along the way. Yeah, there's no question about it. Despite, and this is an important thing to stress, obviously, despite the fact that Swedes are going out of their way to integrate them in terms of what they're, well, let me take it back, out of their way to help them, right? They have the most generous benefits program, in, among the most generous benefits programs in Europe, where they get housing, they get food, they get school, they get clothes, they get cash every month, right? And they put them in, and by the way, their neighborhoods, you know, like people say, oh, violence, and this, it stems from uh, poverty and so forth. Go to these neighborhoods, these no-go zones. That's the thing we should discuss as well. Go to these Islamic enclaves, let's call it for now, and you find beautiful, leafy neighborhoods, wide boulevards, beautiful apartment blocks, and that's the way they're living. Yet even with that, even with that, the problems that, that, that in, the integration is causing Swedes is off the charts. Yeah, this notion of no-go zones, and this got a lot of attention in the context of a debate over this in the U.K. I think it was maybe last year. Uh, people were bringing up no-go zones, and they're bringing up in, in France and in the U.K., and people say, oh, well, there's no such thing as a no-go zone. First of all, whenever you ask authorities in any European country, is there a no-go zone, the answer they're going to give you is, of course not, because that makes them look like a bunch of incompetent buffoons right, right, right off the bat, right? I mean, there are places where the police literally will not go at all. They're not going to admit that publicly. But if a no-go zone means that people like you or like me or— uh, Swedes who are not part of the immigrant community can't walk through there without being in very credible fear of their safety. If it means that police are worried that if they have to make an arrest, there could be a riot, as just happened last night in Sweden. Uh, what are we supposed to call that? If it's not a no-go zone, what is it? A, a, a probably not a good idea to go zone? I mean, that's kind of a no-go zone. <laughs> I mean, no, listen, the, if, if you watch the video, the police I interview, they use the word no-go zones. Those are their words. It is them telling me that there is a national police policy, not a personal policy, a national police policy that they do not enter no-go zones, even if they're in hot pursuit. When they cross that threshold, they do not enter. Okay, so, yeah, no-go zone is not exactly a figment of the conservative imagination, unless it's maybe the figment of the Swedish uh, uh, national police uh, imagination. But listen, I went there. So I hear no-go zones. I go. And unfortunately, I found out how corporal and tangible these no-go zones are because five guys tuned me up. We have the audio. We want you to tell us what happened here. There, there are some. Uh, harsh language, but it's all bleeped, right? We've got it bleeped out, right? I hope so. I believe it's all I believe yes, it's I, we, we believe it is all bleeped out in your documentary, and that's where we uploaded the clip from here. So uh, this is when Ami was in one of these no-go. Were you in Stockholm or the uh, suburbs of Stockholm? Where were you? Suburbs of Stockholm, Husby. Husby. Okay, so he's in Husby. He's walking around, broad daylight, camera crew, and this is what happens to our friend Ami. Play it. It's a problem to uh, to film here. I don't want to be filmed. I know, but why? What's the what's the why? I, don't, I, don't, I just don't want to spawn, you know. But why? Why? Let me see. Why? Let me see. 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 Let me all right, so we get so there's a scuffle. We're bleeping it out there. Things get ugly. What happened, Ami? 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me recount. I thought I had pushed this out of my mind at this point, but thanks for having me uh, recount it uh, all over again. Sorry. I have to, my, 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 my psychology bills are going up again. Uh, what happened was pretty simple, is that we went to this Hoosby uh, area. They said, you guys better get the hell out of here. They didn't give us a chance to explain why we were there. Uh, and um, they just uh, attacked me. They grabbed me. They uh, were kicking me. They were punching me. They were choking me. Uh, it, was, it was pretty bad. And uh, at some point, they, they dragged me into a building vestibule, and I thought, this is where they're going to finish me off. And, you know, by the grace of God, somebody in the, uh, in the apartment right next to the vestibule opened a door, it spooked them, they took off. And that's why I think I'm here today. Oh, man. I mean, this is, and you were, it was, this was broad daylight. You're there with a, broad with a, broad daylight with people watching. The first part of the attack, when, when in the square, before they dragged in the building, there must have been 30, 40 people watching. Now, what, what gets really contentious here, I know, because I see the back and forth already. And by the way, there was so much sneering at Trump for bringing up that Sweden has problems. I know from my work in law enforcement, counterterrorism with the NYPD years ago, Sweden's got all kinds. Sweden, maybe they don't like to talk about it because the government has created this problem and they're not going to want to tell the people who live under the, you know, who live under this government in Sweden that this whole uh, multiculturalist obsession that they have is backfiring, is causing problems, is endangering their, is endangering people in Swedish society. But I've known for a long time, counterterrorism problems are very real there that didn't exist before. Crime problems are real, whether they'll admit it or not. Uh, but on this, on the issue of statistics, this is where you, we, we get into this discussion and there seems to be this desire among the uh, among both the Swedes, this is also true in, in some other European countries. Um, it's true in Germany in the context of the mass sexual uh, assaults that have occurred there in recent years. That they don't want the numbers to be public. They don't want to even collect the data on how often immigrants to these countries are, and they're immigrants, predominantly immigrants from the Muslim world, how often they are uh, causing crimes, violent crimes, including rape and sexual assault. They don't want to even know. They don't want to talk about it. No, they, they don't. And, and that really is the crux of the problem here, because, again, it's this denial of reality. You know, it's funny. In, in 2000, 2001 was the last year that uh, BRA, which is the official keeper of crime statistics in, in, in Europe, kept the demographics, the backgrounds of the perpetrators of crime. But the problem was the number was so high, it was something like 70 percent, that they decided that's too embarrassing. We're going to excise uh, this particular part of the statistic out of the historical record. And that's exactly what happens. You can no longer determine, based on their stats, you could, there, there's other uh, correlative uh, evidence you can point to, but there's no statistical evidence from the government of Sweden to point to demographics. And that's because they realize, listen, again, it, when it comes to the left, it's, about, it's not about reality. It's about their narrative. And if there's any piece of evidence, and I saw this firsthand with the attacks, the attacks uh, that I had to face from New York Times, the Washington Post, the CNN, and for, for uh, et cetera, et cetera. If, you're, if there's any kind of evidence that goes against their version of reality, their narrative, they will strike, and they will strike hard. And they went, at, they went after you, right? They've tried to undermine your credibility. I've been seeing this, uh, getting making the rounds on social media. You went there. You talked to people. You did a, a documentary short on the issue, but somehow you, you know, your Ami doesn't know what he's talking about, or Ami's not telling the truth. W what's their claim? It's amazing. So what ha the basis for all their claims are the two policemen, who, by the way, I still have a tremendous amount of respect for. I think they do uh, a, a, a service to their community. These are brave men. But what happened was 
they came up. Listen, they were in the middle of an S storm, right? I mean, a massive, massive maelstrom. This, 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 this story, this video, this, this, this Trump story has overtaken Sweden, and they were caught up in the middle of it. And the pressure on them must have been intense. And they looked at a guy, by the way, another police officer who recently went through his daily blog on who he's arrested and said, a majority of people I arrested are Muslim. And he was brought up on charges in Sweden, brought up on charges. So these guys looked at that. They looked at this, at this storm and said, uh, we better disassociate ourselves from this video. They, re- they didn't recant what they said. They said I took them out of context that I was talking about. Uh, vi- uh, immig- violence and not immigration. It, the, the argument made no sense. And if you actually listen to what they read, what they said, and then watch the video, you see that it holds no water. But I get it. They wanted to. Ba- they wanted. Yeah, to they, they don't want their neighbors out. looking at them like they're the evil racists that don't want the wonderful immigrants to come in and and flourish in Swedish society. I get it. I understand why they'd backtrack. I'm not saying it's right, but I understand why and they I, would. And I have no problem with major media uh, acknowledging or or mentioning that it happened. But the problem is this. Then I'll give you an example of the New York Times. They talk about the fact they wanted to back away from their story and then said, we reached out to Ami Horowitz but didn't receive a comment. Well, guess what? They didn't reach out to me. They never even tried to attempt to reach me. Yeah, I found, I found you in about five minutes today, Ami. I, I know we go back a number of years, but, you know, you're, you're not exactly in hiding. No, it's not, I'm, I'm, I'm out there, man. I'm out there. And they never bothered. They didn't bother to reach out. And to get my side of the story, so that's the, again, it points to the problem that we have in the media that they're not. And this is, you know, this goes back. I got to be honest to what Trump said about they're almost an opposition party. I, I, I kind of see it now. Yeah, well, I've they're seen it for quite a while. So, uh, well, welcome to the party, on welcome to the party on that one, Ami. Ami, where can people watch your movie? They can go to uh, AmiHorse.com. They can go to YouTube and put in uh, Stockholm Syndrome. They can see it on Facebook. It's out there, man. All right. Ami Horowitz, filmmaker. Uh, Thank you very much for calling in. We appreciate talking to you, my friend. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Talk to you later, man. All right, Team Buck. Much more coming. Stay with me. Just a quick note for all of you listening. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome is the name of Ami Horowitz's documentary short, which it's only about 10 or 12 minutes long. I watched it earlier today. Um, But Stockholm Syndrome, the original Stockholm Syndrome, is a warmth or fondness for one's captors in a hostage situation. So uh, it's a play on words there that uh, Ami is using. But it refer it comes from a 1973 bank robbery uh, where, uh, where Stockholm police were asking for people's help uh, afterwards. Um, and uh, the Swedish criminologist and psychologist uh, Niels Bejerot, I, I have no idea how you pronounce that in Swedish, but uh, not Niels Bejerot or something, I don't know, you know, Swedish, not my... Swedish is not my mother tongue. I do not speak Swedish, uh, but anyway, uh, he coined the term. Uh, he coined the term Stockholm syndrome. Another term I wanted to put out there uh, because you'll see it occasionally pop up in media uh, when they discuss these terrible uh, sexual assaults, and that they've been happening in Sweden too. And it's it's a a really a, a gang sexual assault that is set up so that you have people in a you have uh, a group of men who are who form a uh, a crowd they form a sort of human barrier on the outside and they stand facing outward and then inside there are men who grope and sexually assault and sometimes even uh, rape uh, women and this is called taharush gamea uh, which just means group harassment in uh, in arabic and this is sometimes referred to the most famous 
case of this, and if you look at the specifics, they go into the details about it, involved the CBS reporter Lara Logan in uh, Tahrir Square, a place where I've been and also reported from in Cairo, in Egypt. Uh, she had a group of men surround her face outward to prevent anyone from coming to her assistance, and then men inside the center of this uh, wall of, you know, this human wall of criminals, men on the inside, uh, sexually assaulted her there. And this has happened elsewhere, too. This has happened at concerts. I believe Mumford & Sons, I, th- I believe this was in Sweden as well, refused to play a concert there, uh, if memory serves, uh, because of concerns about this. Although I'd have to check up the citation on that one. I am speaking to you extemporaneously here. But Taharush uh, Gamiya is something that does happen. It is a real thing, and it is a specific. Uh, it is a, a specific problem to, well, the, the the Muslim world. I've never heard of this happening outside of the context of either uh, young male Muslim refugees assaulting a woman, or uh, in the case of Tahrir Square, uh, it all it happens at, at concerts. It's happened at concerts, and it's something that you will see popping up sometimes in. In the news, uh, it is uh, terrifying, and the fact that this is now, it, it's almost like a mass tactical uh, or a tactical movement of men for the purposes of sexual assault. It's it's pretty pretty horrific and, and, and disgusting. Um, what else did I want to tell you about? One, a couple of follow-ons to our AMI interview there. Oh, yes, also, I couldn't believe it when I was reading it initially, but there was a, uh, there was a CBC piece. So up in Canada, there was a piece about how they didn't think that a series of sexual assaults at a, I believe it was at a water park there involving teenage girls, all younger than 16, six teenage girls, all younger than 16. There were complaints because the, the news media reported that the uh, assailant here, and this is just from a couple of weeks ago, and this was CBC News up in Canada, uh, you know, one of their primary news sources as far as i understand or see one you know cbc is a, a big thing up in canada it's really bbc in the uk and they there were people who were upset they were upset because the inclusion of syrian refugee in the description of the assailant here remember who sexually abused and sexually assaulted six girls under the age of 16 in this water park uh, allegedly the description of him when it was a Syrian refugee, when some of the news sources insert, when they quote, they inserted the two words Syrian refugee and it completely changed the dimension of the story. That's the claim here. And that there, the concern, uh, the concern is that it's quote, not relevant to the story, they say. And so it should not be reported. Um, I think it's relevant to the story. Isn't this interesting when journalists decide that the background of an attacker an assailant like this is off limits all of a sudden. And they're pretty explicit about it in this piece. It's because people uh, in the media there are worried that it will create anti-immigrant sentiment. Well, you know what creates anti-immigrant sentiment? When journalists and the authorities and police, even in some circumstances, lie to the general population because they don't want there to be hurt feelings among the immigrant community. We should know the facts. We are adults. We can make our own decisions about what it means politically, but you'll notice journalists and many governments don't feel that way about this issue. We've got more coming up. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's why That's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, 
strong voice, Buck Sexton. You heard the man, Buck Sexton is here. Yay. We're also uh, joined by David French. He's a staff writer for National Review and a senior uh, senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Check out his latest on nationalreview.com. Got a few pieces we want to talk to him about. David, thanks for joining. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So first, let's start off. Uh, the Rage Against the Machine, Understanding the Milo Phenomenon. It's up on nationalreview.com right now. I, I love that you start out this piece by talking about something that I've had friends who work uh, on the sports side of things whisper to me before that, for example, ESPN is MSNBC with sports, I've been told. <laughs> I know that's made the rounds out there now. But but even among the, the sports commentariat, there is now this uh, political orthodoxy that is leftist, that is progressive, and you transgress that at your professional peril. And you bring this up, you bring this up in the context of th- this is why there is such rage on the right. People are sick of even what should be nonpartisan or nonpolitical, I should say, nonpolitical institutions that are so heavily politicized. So the anger is understandable. Right, right exactly. I mean, uh, the launching off point was this this piece in the ringer was basically explaining how sports writing became such a liberal profession, where the guy admits, frankly, that your liberal politics are helping sports writers get jobs these days. Like now, what what their position on, say, the immigration has to do with the pick and roll, I don't know. But uh, these guys are are not they're not just commenting on basketball or football anymore. They're inflicting their political opinions on us as well. All, you know, in this interest of being sort of this, quote, woke liberal. And, and well, can I just add to the, David that it's even more pernicious to me that if people want to share their opinions outside of their lane, you know, right, this is where we, it is America, right, free country. But there is a punishing of those who step outside of the left or leftist orthodoxy such that, as you write in this piece, Curtis asked, could someone even be a Paul Ryan friendly sports writer knocking out their power rankings while tweeting that Obamacare is a failure and that the Iran deal was a giveaway of American sovereignty, uh, based on what I've heard from people I know who have worked at ESPN, the answer to that is no. Right, exactly. So on the one hand, you have these people, these, uh, quote, woke liberals inflicting their opinion on us at the same time. It's not an actual marketplace of ideas. I wouldn't have an issue with ESPN, for example, if it said, hey, look, our employees are our employees, their viewpoints are their, are their viewpoints, and everyone is free to share. But ESPN has put its thumb on the scales in a big-time way, and, and this is just one example. It's just one example. You can go from corporation to corporation, from campus to campus, from movie to movie, and, and even your neutral things that are supposed to be neutral cultural institutions are becoming increasingly progressive. And what that, what it, it, it's often the result of intentional exclusion. So there is a proper degree of anger that's out there that says we're tired of this and we're particularly tired of it when they're coming at us not from a position of respect and understanding for conservative points of view but often from a standpoint of intolerance and ignorance of conservative points of view this incredible moral superiority that is based uh, on fiction and 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 on caricatures and it justifiably makes people angry. It's also funny, your, your piece, you have Rage Against the Machine in the title, and of course, Rage Against the Machine, a very uh, politically minded and, and politicized group of, <laughs> of, of leftist radicals, although Tom Rello, I think, went to Harvard. Not that you can't be a leftist radical who goes to Harvard, but, you know, he's one of, the, he's one of those. Um, and uh, uh, then you, you transition, though, from, rage, from setting up why there is this rage 
to the issue of what what you see happening here with Milo. And I want you to walk us through that. Yeah. So essentially what's happening is is you have this understandable hunger out there for people to find to find um, pundits, to find celebrities, to find personalities who will fight for them, who will sort of do the same thing to the left that like a John Oliver or a John Stewart does to the right. I mean, and Milo uh, became one of those people. Yeah, he was I, trolling the trolls. Absolutely. You know, you would see YouTube. YouTube would suggest to you again and again, watch Milo destroy feminist cam- or campus social justice warrior. And and it was uh, a lot like, you know, when you would see YouTubes that say, watch John Oliver destroy Fox News. It was sort of that tit for tat, trolling the trolls, as you said. And it drew people in, and it drew people in for reasons that I completely understand. But the problem became there, there is a right way to rage against the machine, and there is a wrong way to rage against the machine. And when you're shocking for the sake of shock, outraging for the sake of outrage, and not pointing towards things that are good, that are true, uh, and that are, you know, have real virtue in our society – um, you you're going to end up being part of the problem yourself. You're just going to become another one of these voices that's uh, more self-promotional and angry than you are actually uh, constructively co- confrontational. Now, I, I don't want to be yet another voice, and I've tried to avoid it uh, today on on both of my shows. Uh, who's just denouncing what Milo said? Because I don't think any everyone's clear. Those are not things you. Sh- those are not things that anyone should be saying. Um, and so I'm not going to ask you about what led to this crisis for him in terms of the actual comments that he made, because I don't think I think that's a, that's a waste of the audience's time. No one needs to be told that you, no one should be advocating for the things that he was advocating for, including Milo, who's now said he's sorry and he shouldn't have said it. And he agrees. So I, I hope that his supporters will understand that when the guy you're supporting is like, no, I made a mistake. It's bad. Stop yelling at people for saying it's bad. But you found problem with Milo's tone and approach even before this uh, this current crisis uh, happened. Well, right. I mean, you know, this this current thing. I mean, first, this current thing is not new. This is stuff that he's right. It's been out there for a while. I pointed that out earlier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And but he also was um, the chief defender of this so-called alt right, uh, and and he seemed to love the alt right primarily because it attacked everyone that Milo hated. And so uh, this sort of enemy of my enemy is my friend. And then Milo himself flirted with this kind of alt-right ideology. You know, he he adopted uh, phrases and words and uh, wrote pieces explicitly defending it. And this the alt-right and, and then actually even participated in some of the online uh, uh, pylons that were that weren't just merry little trolls. They were it was vicious and deeply personal. And so he he went from trolling the trolls to to being his own form of a different troll. Yeah. 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 To being, you know, and I don't even like to use the word troll because troll implies some sort of fun spirit behind it or. Wink oh, no. Eye. Internet trolls are terrible. Internet trolls deserve a special yeah. place in hell. But go ahead. <laughs> exactly. It was just vicious and cruel. And and the thing is, and it was turned against uh, a fellow. It, it was turned against conservatives. It was turned against. Hollywood celebrities who hadn't done anything to him at all. It was, it was just uh, he became a weapon, an internet weapon, um, and and that is not what the conservative movement should be about. That I, kind of cruelty. I have to say that I uh, yeah, and that also there was a <laughs> I, I was subjected to this. I, I know you were in in much worse ways from what you've told me about on, on air, David. 
the the Trump supporter. I was a guy who ended up voting for Trump, and I still got my fair right. share of you know sellout, horrible CIA takeover of America, controlled by the Illuminati, and that's the polite you know non four letter stuff. But anyway, and yeah. from from Trump supporters that and that's a whole that's a whole separate conversation. I know we could go down that path, but the first time I ever even heard of the alt right. And I'm so I, all I do is read newspapers and opinion columns and try to stay as uh, as up to date on current events as I can. Had to do with Milo, so th- yeah. that was interesting to me that he was the first. And I thought, okay, well, here's somebody who's taking a different approach, um, and and it does go to that rage against the machine mentality because I do think people are frustrated, and and I think that that's a lot of the support for Trump as well. Is you're just going to say things that anger these people that set them off. For the sake of setting them off, because we're all so sick of living in this PC tyranny. So I do understand that. Right. But the opposite of political correctness isn't being a jerk or worse. And and that's you know what some people forget. They, they essentially – sometimes people are saying, well, the, the best thing that I can possibly do is infuriate a social justice warrior. Well, you've got to ask yourself, how are you doing it? Are you infuriating them with the truth or you're infuriating them with Nazi imagery? <laughs> and that's what the alt-right was doing. I mean it was sending anti-Semitic images, uh, 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 threatening images to Jewish journalists on a massive scale. Uh, that's not – that's infuriating social justice warriors. It's also infuriating people who have a basic sense of moral decency. Uh, and and that's when it became deeply destructive. And but because it was being aimed at a lot of people that in particular um, aimed at a lot of people that in particular uh, Trump fans didn't like, they didn't worry about it so much. And, and part of what's so cynical about all of this is that Milo has been nothing about what happened here is new. Nothing. There is no new revelation. There is no new knowledge about Milo. And he has been blasted apart and discarded. Why? Because that kind of disruption is no longer useful um, to people who have employed him in the past or who contracted with him to write a book, um, that his disruption was seen as dangerous and not useful. And so he's discarded. Um, Milo hadn't changed. The conditions around him had changed, and his usefulness to his own movement had changed. And he and and he's now been thoroughly and completely discarded by all of his former allies and friends. Now, I do think that Milo is, is an extreme case uh, in the sense that he said the things that there are limits, you know, and I don't have to get into them, but, you know, there are limits. Although you did have an SNL cast member in what was otherwise a pretty funny t- uh, send up of Sean Spicer uh, make a very it was very quick. It was fleeting, but it was mocking the the mentally disabled. And I thought that it was it was surprising because I think that's also a red line for most normal people. Like you just never you never go there. That's never funny. It's never OK. Um, right. But she got Do you know what I'm talking about. That was in the spite. Yeah. The first. Oh. oh, yeah. The first Spicer send up they did uh so anyway but usually i think people understand what the what the true red lines are and i know then people say oh well you're not really for free speech but i mean you know reasonable people can be reasonable uh but i want to ask you before i gotta let you go david because we're gonna run to a break you mentioned and i i find this fascinating i think this should be the case that apart from the milo situation in general employers need to stop firing people for what they do on private social media on their private time unless it's really bad (laughs) and i agree with that right Right. I mean, I honestly think the primary threat to the culture of free speech, I'm not talking about the First Amendment, which protects uh, against government inaction, but our government action, but the culture of free speech is this unbelievably oppressive atmosphere in so many corporations that they're going to be reading your 
Facebook feeds. Uh, they're going to be wanting to make sure that you're agreeing with the diversity trainers. And I know I have friends all even, you know, even here in Middle Tennessee who are afraid to voice and speak their minds in their own workplace, whereas their liberal colleagues are not. And they're right they're to be afraid, by the way. They're, they're not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, they're not remotely crazy. I mean, mentioning that they supported Trump, as virtually all of my friends did, um, they have legitimate concern that that could lead to some sort of, uh, you know, disciplinary action or counseling or admonition where, you know, I have friends who had uh, colleagues who just took days off of work because they were so distraught uh, that Hillary lost with zero repercussion. Yeah, no, the, the double standards there are are really mind-boggling. But, but also, I, I would like us to get to a place where employers don't feel the need to constantly police, I get, within reason, right? I mean, I mean that's where you, I guess it starts to fall into, well, what's within reason? I mean, you're a lawyer, David. I know you know. We can play these games all day. But it's it's gotten oppressive with, you know, so-and-so said something that people don't like on social media. You better fire them or else. Some companies need to say, you know what? That was their own thing in their own time, and we, we, we defend free speech as a principle in this country as well. But, David, I'm having too, too much fun talking to you, and we've run out of time here. David French of National Review, everybody. Check out his latest. David, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, team, back on the flip side. Stay with me. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. If you missed any part of today's show, you want to listen to it, please go to AmericanOutRadio.com slash podcast, and uh, hopefully we'll have some additional ways for you to listen soon. Uh, Cindy in Pennsylvania on WAEB. You are on the Buck Saxon Show. What's up? Hi, Buck. Um, just started listening to your show, and I just want to say you're doing a great job, and I am really in- enjoying it. Thank you so much. Please keep listening. Uh, please, please tell a couple of friends about it so they know. It's a new and exciting yes, show. I, from I will. Thank you. <laughs> I will. Um, I just wanted to call in and touch on, um, if I could quickly, about the um, which you had said about uh, the press not wanting to say things like Syrian refugees in their reporting. And I had just been listening to uh, the town hall on uh, Fox, and there was a woman there. She stood up. She was a, an immigrant from Berlin, and she compared the wall separating Mexico and the U.S. to the Berlin Wall, uh, a wall within a country, <laughs> not apples to apples. Um, and, you know, of course, Mexico and U.S. borders separating two sovereign countries. So then she went on to say that proponents for the, the wall should get to know some immigrants instead of fearing what they don't know. And she conveniently left out the word illegal. So um, I just feel like we conservatives and particularly in the Trump administration need to really um, call this out. We have to hone in our, our critical thinking skills and we need to combat this subversion of fact that's cleverly disguised as political correctness, because I think that's how Trump won was because he called it out. And if he stops doing that, he's just going to he's just going to be buried with these assaults. And, you know, now they're calling him anti-Semitic every other day, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard when you look at his staff. And you know, I didn't, get, I didn't get to mention so. this, Cindy, but I think it's important. The, the accusation of Trump as anti-Semitic is... Yeah. Is a frivolous accusation, is a baseless accusation, but of course it, you know, it it gets in the machinery, it gets in the gears, it slows things. You know, then now Trump and Sean Spicer and others have to spend time addressing this, and they have to deal with this, and that I think is part of the media plan here, right? Even if the charge doesn't stick by making the right. charge. You get the, you know, from their perspective, you get the benefit of 
forcing Trump to respond to the charge. You know, it's almost like uh, lawfare or, or, or frivolous lawsuits that are intended to just bog somebody down in the courts. They're trying to bog down the administration with, oh, anti-Semitism. You didn't, you didn't decry anti-Semitism. You know, I mean, it's one of his closest advisors, and Evers was talking about how he's got so much power in the government, is his son-in-law, who's, who's Orthodox Jewish. So, you know, he's such an anti-Semite that, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. But see, but you know what's in it? Here we are talking about it, right? Here we are having this discussion because we, we've got, you know, we got to go on defense. And that's what Trump does understand. You got to be on offense. If you want to get things done, you can't allow them to box you in. You can't allow them to put you in a corner. Nobody puts Trump in a corner. Thanks for calling in, Cindy, from Pennsylvania. <laughs> Great to talk to you. Appreciate it. Always fun to have a, a new voice here in the Freedom Hut, which I really do appreciate very much. Um, uh, let me see what we've got here. Oh, by the way, I, I, I meant to mention earlier in the show, there have been a couple of high profile, uh, speaking of the, the culture wars, uh, between East and West that are playing out in the, uh, well, the back and forth over Sharia and refugees assimilating and on all of that, which is playing out in Europe in a way that I think a lot of Americans look at. There are a couple of high-profile cases of people refusing to wear the hijab, which is the Islamic head cover. Hijab is just a general term for Islamic head covering, for a head... Well, it's not always a scarf, but it's oftentimes a scarf. And I wanted to get to this, but that music, unfortunately, means that we're going to have to hold that for tomorrow. So we might get a chance to have a more in-depth conversation about all of that on the morrow. Uh, if you thought there was a topic that we should have spent time on today we didn't get to or that we you want to hear more on, uh, best place to go is facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. You can send me some messages there. Or if you're on Twitter and you're not, not yet following me, I'm tweeting up a storm all the time or at least reading Twitter all the time. I don't really tweet all that much because there are other things I like to do in life. Unlike some people who are tweeting hundreds of thousands of times. I don't know how anybody does that. Anyway, um, what else was I going to say? Oh, yes. Tweet at me, at Buck Sexton on Twitter, and let me know what you think about the show. I'll be back with you, well, every night, Monday through Friday, of course. And until then, my friends, shields high.